HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for over nine years and nearly 400 episodes. And even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices on our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio made of two recycled shipping containers because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the food world. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. And you can even show some love for my show by selecting the food scene in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Matt Abergel. And what's really cool about having you here right now is that you aren't from here. You kind of are. Um, you're from Hong Kong uh, via Canada. Uh, and you are probably best known for two specific words, and that's chicken and charcoal. And we're going to talk about your Canadian upbringing and try to figure out what the classic chicken or charcoal dishes are there and why you become a yakitori master overseas. But first, let's talk about this Canadian aspect of you and your life. Um, where in Canada were you born? Calgary, Alberta. And does Alberta have a barbecue, you know, history? Uh, is that ingrained in that culture? Yeah, I mean, you, basically when it's nice enough outside, so like four months of the year, but, you know, <laughs> You, you, everyone's outside and you're, you, you barbecue every weekend and I mean, you cook outside as much as you can when you can. Talk, talk to me about the contraptions that you've barbecued on uh, during your lifetime. Like what was your first barbecue? I mean, that's probably, that was the first charcoal barbecue. That was in my dad's backyard and, uh, he used like lump charcoal I mean, you just collect pine needles from around like dried pine needles to start the charcoal. That was always like the fun, like this, I loved trying to like get it lit. And you get it all spread out and 
You always end up burning like the first round of chicken wings. Yeah, it's like the pancake, right? Exactly, you it's throw always out sticks. The first one, fuck. <laughs> but then you use those for something else. I'm sure either the dogs or a stock, etc. Yeah. But I was also reading that you had a, a large family, and that six aunts. Uh, you never knew which one was coming over for lunch, but on this big old oil barrel, you'd grill kebabs, and each one had their own recipe. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me? Uh, what those recipes were and what a gathering around that grill was like. So when I say kebab, I mean like uh, like it's like a burger kind of, and a lot of them, most of the time it's lamb, uh, and then mixed a ton of, ton of parsley, garlic, onion, um, sumac, depending on who it was, cumin. Uh, one of my aunts puts pomegranate seeds in there, um, and they were mostly responsible, though, also for all the side dishes, right? So a lot of tahini, a lot of vegetables. One of my one of my aunts uh, has a farm, that lives on a moshav, so she brings like she she makes the best vegetables. She makes she's amazing. Um, and then on the grill, we do like chicken hearts interspersed with lamb fat, like so they basically like in between the chicken heart would be lamb fat. That's my favorite. That's I love even throughout the book you you weave fat in so you you're creating like your uh, own subcutaneous layer per whatever you're grilling and yeah I mean that that makes the tastiest food when that stuff renders and mm-hmm. you know gets especially with crispy. the birds we use like they have such nice such nice sub like underneath the skin and and also intramuscular amazing for a chicken amazing so the kebabs Israeli mm-hmm. um, where do you identify as, as a Canadian, as an Israeli, as someone who worked in New York, as now a uh, Hong Kong expat? Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong is 100% my home. That's, that's for sure. I probably identify as Canadian, but I have no interest in going back to Canada. I, love, I, I, I feel very proud of Hong Kong as a city. Um, and it, I... I treat it like it's my city, you know, so. Well, they certainly have embraced you, it seems. Yeah. Uh, back to Canada. Are there any classic chicken dishes or grill dishes that you think have carried throughout your career or that we might see a slight influence uh, in, in Yardbird in Hong Kong? Not from Canada, no. No. Not, uh, I mean, from family, but not from specific. Canada is a pretty, like, uninteresting culinary heritage I think as a country but for us I mean I grew up all my friends were first generation Canadians my dad's not born in Canada every one of my friends pretty much his parents were not born in Canada and Calgary especially is a very young city so for me I don't know that that there is such a thing as Canadian food so much it's you know it's like for me when I go to Canada the first thing I eat is Vietnamese food the second thing I eat is Chinese food you know, like it's even living in Hong Kong, I still crave Canadian Chinese food, you know? Oh, that's fine. Well, I was always, not to assume that you're a hockey fan, but I was assuming that um, the Calgary Flames, the flame had something to do maybe with the grilling culture there. I no. could be completely I think wrong. it was, I think, yeah, I think that, I don't know where it came from, but it probably has more to do with like the Oilers and the Flames. Oh, gotcha. Like the, the probably, I don't know, I don't know shit about hockey, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you certainly know your way around a bird, and it seems like that's been generational, too. Uh, there's an instance in the book where you talk about roasted Cornish hens by your bubby, uh, your grandmother in Yiddish, or uh, you know, birds being braised by your safta, your grandmother in Hebrew. Yeah. Can you talk to me about growing up with those kind of 
family members, cooks, and dishes in your life? Yeah, I mean, the, the Cornish hens were something that were very, it was every Friday, every Friday that we would go, you know, eat as a, as a kid. We'd always have Shabbat dinner and we'd always have Cornish hens every day, every single time. And I would eat, like, they're, you know, you know what a Cornish hen looks like? It's small. And she roasted them in this weird, like, convection oven that she had that sat on her dryer. It's like, you know, she only brought it out to do that. And it really, they were good. Like, she'd leave them outside first for, like, a good, like, two, three hours. (laughs) And just rub them with paprika and, like, just, like, a little bit of oil. And and you could eat, like, the wingtips. You could crunch through the bones. Like, I would... Oh, there'd be very little left to that bird when I was done with it. And I was like, like my mom would get so pissed. She'd be like, stop chewing on the bones. You're going to choke. I'm like, I always eat the bones. Like I'm. Yeah. Yeah. If you give me a chicken wing, like you won't like, there's almost like, I'll chew the bones. Have you ever choked on a bone? I've never choked on a bone. I recently cracked my, I recently cracked my tooth on one though. Worth it though. It was interesting. I was in Vietnam and it was like this like whole rotisserie bird it was so fucking good and I just yeah cracked my tooth yeah I mean I, I've been in those trances where you're eating something and you don't realize what you're doing I, I don't know if this ever happened to you but you bite the fuck out of your finger <laughs> I've never bit my finger okay, so that's, just, that's just me but you know you're you hungry, get, huh? you, you get <laughs> so into it and you're working your way around those bones and yeah so I guess that's just a me thing yeah. <laughs> but let, let's talk more about these chickens um you you have had a whole bunch of favorite chicken dishes throughout your life that aren't necessarily ones that were, you know, made with charcoal. Uh, tell me about your favorite fried chicken, your favorite rotisserie, your favorite nuggets. Fried chicken was my friend, one of my best friends growing up. His dad had a a very, very seedy hotel uh, called, called the St. Louis. And they did kettle fried chicken, big ass kettle, like, like the size of this fucking table. Yeah. And it like was real KFC. Yeah. And it was amazing. That shit was, and it was good cold and it was good hot and it was a fucking weird ass place. And they only served it kind of in the basement, which is a bar, very like divey, divey bar. We were kids. We used to go like, you know, on the weekends, go visit his dad and like just, yeah. So that was definitely my favorite fried chicken. Um, you said rotisserie? Yeah, rotisserie. I love rotisserie chicken. So even bad rotisserie chicken is still good. Yeah. I mean, it's having a little boom in the States right now. A lot of people are doing that Francophile, you know, Parisian mm. chicken and drippings and potato thing going on. See, I, I don't particularly like French style rotisserie. I think they're over, they overdo everything. They overdo the marinade. They over, I, I like Peruvian. I like the more like the, the kind of the spatchcocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's way better. Hawaiian it, style is pretty good too. Is spatchcocking better because of the surface area that you can get more flavor on the exterior? Why? For, yeah, do you like I mean that? It, the, the spatchcocking makes sense to me. I mean that's kind of like the like the probably the f- first of all you're you're exposing all of the skin kind of to one side more or less. So already there you're winning because you can control that. Um, and everything's exposed. Like there's, you know, there's not that little flabby part under the arm when they have, you know, like there's a lot of things that, and you can just control it better. Definitely. Can you control nuggets? Absolutely. How many you can put in your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's been chicken in all shapes, sizes, and forms throughout your life that you've been I've akin loved. to. Yeah. Yeah. 
Is that your protein of choice? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like one word answers. Like you didn't even have to think about it. But then charcoal, is is that your energy source of choice? Absolutely for yakitori. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, And for what I do, I mean, I think that's what gives us... It's it's a distinctive flavor. It's 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 it connects us. You know, I think the flavor of chicken and charcoal relaxes people. I think that it automatically makes you more friendly. You're more open to whatever you're about to experience. You know, like it gives you a familiarity. So definitely, yeah. Yeah. So you're like, is it the opposite of King of the Hill? It was that cartoon, and uh, the main character Hank Hill was a, I think, a propane salesman, and he hated charcoal. He like. Really? So I, I think you're you're his antithesis. I mean, I like cooking on all f- types of energy sources, but definitely for like barbecue. I mean, like if, if you want it and chicken and I mean, but fish tastes better on charcoal and beef tastes better on char- you know like everything tastes better with charcoal in my opinion. When did you have this realization? Because I know in high school you started working in kitchens. Yeah. Um, was that more for the money, or did you figure out your methodologies then? Like regarding the charcoal or just cooking, cooking. in general? Uh, no, I found, I, I mean, I loved cooking from about 12, I'd say. Uh, I just like to like make things, whatever I, I would eat and then I would try and figure out what was in it and try and recreate it. I spent a lot of time, I always loved going to markets, like, like Chinese grocery stores or Vietnamese grocery stores when I was a kid. Um, and I would just buy weird shit and take it home and cook it. And my mom would be like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, I was a vegetarian for a long time, too. So when I, and, and so I was always really into, like, Asian greens. Like, all, like, the bok choys and choy sum and gailan and so many different varieties. So that's what I was... I know the vegetarian veganism is a little bit in line with like the punk movement, but you were a skateboarder. Yeah. Uh, was the vegetarianism part of that culture? Uh, no, the vegetarianism for me was, was out of interest. I wanted to know, I wanted to know what, like, I don't know. Just when you went to just be able to focus on it. I think cause in Calgary, like eating was just a very mon- monotonous kind of, thing in a way like you know, a lot of meat a lot of i'm allergic to I'm, I'm i'm mildly allergic to potatoes so it's like i wasn't i wasn't ever that excited about like that kind of style of food so we did, and, and our family ate a lot of asian food so it was more like just trying to explore vegetables and explore what you can eat like if you go out of your way just to eat vegetables kind of i mean it wasn't i didn't care about animals yeah if, if that's your if that was your asking yeah i mean roundabout but then why the interest in traveling to Korea, Japan, Malaysia after high school? Because uh, I love, I mean, I love the food. I was supposed to be gone for a long time. I was supposed to be gone for a year. But uh, yeah, I broke my leg in Malaysia. So after Malaysia, I was supposed to go, I think I was supposed to go to Vietnam and Thailand. And I had planned and purchased trips. Like, I was good for a year. I had enough money for a year. Um, Japan was the first place because a friend... And Korea was the second place because of a friend. Uh, both, you know, both of that, that trip definitely very much, like, gave me, it gave me the confidence to just explore those, both those cuisines a lot more. So I had a, I had a very, like, just clear 
idea because the people I ate with there, like, and at the time I had very little money, right? So I'm not going to like nice restaurants. I was going to izakayas. I was, I was going side like sidewalks and just trying to find like, like cause, and and the food there is really it was less reasonable then, but like it was more expensive then. But now like it's so reasonable. And we're talking yeah. Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I was in Chiba in Tokyo the first time. Yeah, I agreed. And a lot of people. Go there assuming you have to do high-end uh, no, kaiseki, omakase. Uh, let, let's talk about that first time experiencing yakitori in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember where you went. It was, uh, at the, it was, it was at the, the gates of Inokashira Park mm-hmm. in Yoyogi. And um, yeah, it was like this, it was an after work spot. So it was like half indoor, half outdoor. Like they were grilling, but like there was a kind of a window going out. And just standing tables, um, and people just kind of like hung out and had a beer or had a highball and really cheap sticks. Like, and you just kind of like, you know, you just order. And he, he's there. It's a, it was a long grill, and he's pretty much just continuously cooking. So you order like what you want. He just literally just picks up and hands it to you. Is ready right away. Some maybe a few plates that are just like sitting there. Um, that was when I kind of like really fell in love with Japanese food because then I realized that it was like, you know, when I eat growing up in Calgary, like fucking udon, like shitty udon, like really bad udon, really bad tempura, terrible, but sometimes good, terrible sushi, you know, like really like rolls and shit like that, like guilty pleasure rolls, but terrible rice, everything bad. Mm-hmm. But it was all, or like Benihana's, you know, which is called Ido Japan, where I'm from. Uh, and Japanese village. That was, that was another one. So then we got there and I was like, man, there's so much more. And, and also just the fact that these places are tiny, that they're only doing one thing. That's what got me. I mean, like the one, the singularity of it. The, the one thing is, is a very defining thing, too, in this day and age where we try to put a name and associate the, even fast casual to a restaurant or do you consider yourself a, a chicken restaurant, a yakitori place? I mean, how would you describe what you do now? We cook yakitori. I don't think that that's a, I don't think you can describe a restaurant as yakitori. I mean, we cook yakitori. We do our best to make people feel welcome. We want to, we just want to have a nice, comfortable restaurant. Yeah. That we do things the way we want to do them. So it's a little bit of that Japanese term omotenashi, you know, the, the hospitality yeah. aspect. But then the, the way you want to do things seems um, a little different, not as maybe servile as some of the places you'd approach in Japan. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously I'm not Japanese, and I think that's one of my greatest, uh, like, not a, it's not an ability. <laughs> <laughs> my greatest ability is, not, is, is, you know, advantages to cook Japanese food and not be Japanese. You know, I studied it and I deeply respect it but there's a lot of things that I don't agree with and that I you know working in Japanese restaurants there's a lot of things that those people don't agree with either but they don't say anything because they can't because they'll get smacked or you know like and um so yeah we don't run we run some things very Japanese and we run thing other things not at all so we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the best parts of the chicken okay. and also the concept and evolution of Yardbird as a whole. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. 
Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Matt Abergel of Yardbird in Hong Kong. And I want to talk to you about the best parts of a chicken. Or First, let's define the word yakitori. Okay. What does it mean? Yaki means grilled. Tori means bird. It's that simple, right? Yeah. But is it really that simple? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it can be that simple. I think... Yes. And no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, when, when you go to a yakitori place, um, there's a selection of different parts of the bird. Yeah. Uh, you can get a neck, you can get a tail, a soft bone. Uh, what are the easiest ones to cook and the hardest ones to, you know, present? I think that once you kind of understand the charcoal and, and how your grill is, then... You know, you can you can cook anything, but the hardest ones are probably the ones that have the most fat to render. So, like tail, um, different types of the skin. Uh, those are the ones that you take a lot more technique, I guess, and time. Uh, things like the heart, super easy, super fast. Um, yeah, so I think those ones, the ones, those are like a real. That's that's like a fairly committed period of of cooking i was gonna ask what came first the the chicken or the charcoal but really you have to get the best damn chicken possible to be able to grill over that charcoal to make the greatest effect um you had the pleasure of working at masa one of the most lauded restaurants in new york if not the states if not the world and i don't want to talk about masa that much i actually want to talk about carlo Mm. Talk to me about who Carlo is um, and why he is as much an institution of Masa as Masa is. So Carlo is Lapera Brothers. I think they're out in Bed-Stuy. And he works... I mean, he, he for me, was the, it was the first introduction kind of into the idea of things being killed to order 
an ex- like a, an, an ingredient for me to be like just asking to be you know slaughtered on the day and coming in and you know he was just great he he really gave a great service you know he came in he had a conversation with you he talked to you about the chickens he'd make sure you're ha- happy you know um and that was like a i think for me it was, he was quite a pivotal person like to meet someone like this who has a lot of pride in what he does and just a great product. I mean, like the product is just so much better than every other chicken. And he was just like, you know, it's like no one knew. Yeah. It's been such an ingrained part of being a Japanese chef to have that shokunin, you know, have have that person that you go directly to for that singular thing. Kind of like how people are coming to you for yakitori now. Um, What was Masa's qualification of a good bird, a good chicken? I think like his, his qualification like for it was for everything. It was that it was at its freshest state and it was the best uh, example of that product. For him, whatever that product needed to taste like, if it you know like it was the it, it had it, it was it, it was the essentials of what that product's supposed to be. And for him, I think it was obviously fat, flavor, texture, ability to get crisp, skin, you know, like not watery, not mushy. Certainly not old. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, he had a, he does have a very 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 sensitive nose. Like that guy can smell anything from anywhere, and I mean uh, that's how we obviously that's how we gauge freshness as humans. Um, so yeah, with Masa, you know, being the the figure that he is in the states. Um, a lot of people assume that it's just a sushi or omakase or maybe even closer to a kaiseki restaurant. What yakitori um, skills did you learn from working there that have carried over to Yardbird? I mean, his approach, uh, the, the things I learned, I didn't learn how to cut chicken from masa. Um, we learned, we kind of taught ourselves in that sense, but he taught us how to cut fish. And so taking, and, and taking that approach of how to cut fish to cutting chicken was what we learned. And so, you know, obviously just being very gentle, uh, using the sharpest knives you can possibly use and figuring out how to not waste anything, how to get every single piece of meat off that bone. You know, like for staff meal there, we would eat fish carcasses all the time and they're delicious. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just that kind of, that was what he taught us. He taught us how to look at something and see way more than I think most people do. Or you could put a fish collar on the menu and eventually people will buy it. Right. We, we, we had, I mean, we served collars all the time, made them for soup. We, for like, and it was mostly for VIPs, you know, like the VIPs who come in, they get the fish head all the time. Were you ever a VIP at either Yakitori Toto or Torishin? I worked at Torishin. Yeah. Yeah. And we went to, we went to Toto a lot. So talk, yeah. to, talk to me about those two places in New York because, you know, they still exist. Yeah. They still thrive. Um, what, what kind of restaurants are they and how profound of an effect have they made on you? Well, Toto was our spot. Every Sunday, me and Lindsay would go eat at Toto. Almost every Sunday. And, you know, it was, it was that feeling that you actually craved these, like, you would crave those chicken wings and all they are fucking chicken wings cooked on charcoal with salt. And it was like, and we love to drink there and there was no pretension. We always thought the service could be better. And that was one of the things that we, we talked about all the time. We'd sit there, we'd 
look at each other and just talk about how like we love eating like this and I love cooking like this and but the service could be different and we, you know that's that's where it got conceptualized. Tori Shin happened by kind of by chance where um, they were just opening and I was kind of on the tail end of my time here and they needed some help. A friend introduced me and I ended up just being there for like three months just helping them open. That's where I learned a lot of technique, like about butchering. Uh, we were already, and then and the skewering as well. Yeah. So a lot of the technique comes from there. Well, let's jump to Hong Kong. It's not a big jump because you kind of decided while in New York, I've, I've done all I can here. You had a daughter. It was time to move, uh, time to move on. Was it time to have your own thing or was it time no. just to be someplace else? Man, it was time to make some money. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, so I, I took a job as the head chef of, a, of of Zuma, which that they had offered me a job in in Dubai at some point a few years before, and I was just like, I'm not fucking going to Dubai. And then I basically like when I found out that Lindsay was pregnant and that we were like planning, we we got a plan to leave. I, I couldn't stay in the states. Um. I called him and I was like, yo, do you guys have any, like, like I, the, the chef I knew, and he asked me, you guys hiring? He was looking for people. And I thought I was just going to get like a sous chef position or something. And they ended up flying me out to London and just, they offered me the head chef position in Hong Kong. I'm like, I've never been to Hong Kong. I'm like, fuck it. He's like, okay, you can go, we're going to send you to Hong Kong for three days. You plenty of time to figure it figure out. Figure it out. You, figure, <laughs> like, you, can, you can come back and make a decision. And I'm like, okay. So when, like, just, I literally looked at, like, the price of diapers or something stupid and the price of rent, and the food is good. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> Took the job. And then, I mean, that was a big restaurant. It was a 10,000 square feet restaurant, 37 chefs. I never managed that many people or that many seats ever. So... It was a good learning experience. And then two years of that, I was done. And I, I loved Hong Kong. I really, I love it. So we just decided to stay. It's, it's not a downgrade, but it's definitely much smaller uh, Yardbird at, what, 1,400 square feet. Um, and when you opened up that restaurant, were you looking to serve volume? Were you no. looking? What, what kind of, I, I know I wanted my one restaurant. Yeah. I wanted my one restaurant. We thought it was just going to be chill. Yeah. And like, I was just going to cook. And very romantic ideas of what it was going to be. Like we started off with 10 chickens a day, three guys in the kitchen. That was mm -hmm. it. And it was like, you know, it was like just cook and be really happy with like doing 50 covers a day. Like that was the goal. And now you're doing 50 birds a day. We're doing 80 now. Whew. And there it was like, the kitchen was tiny, 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 tiny. And so the beginning of the first like week or so, we were doing like 10 chickens a day. And then the second week it was like 20. The third week it was 30. And it was like, and, and it just kept on getting busier and busier and busier. And then we maxed out. We couldn't physically fit or cook any more than 55 chickens, basically, in that spot. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the idea was just to, like, I wanted just to have a, that's why I opened Ronin. Like, Ronin is now where I can actually just go and cook. Ronin is your, like, Japanese seafood slash whiskey bar, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you like taking these single concepts and honing in on them. Um, but I want to get back to Yardbird Sorry. because, again, you can't have a chicken restaurant without having a chicken guy. Yeah. So who's your guy there? Uh, Hapo, Hapo Poultry. So it's, his, it's a father-son, uh, Ivan 
and we call him Mr. Wong because <laughs> he's Mr. Wong. Uh, and they they provide us with a triple yellow chicken, and they're killed less than less than a block from the restaurant now. We moved. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's even closer to the to the, to the probably why, why I moved. Yeah, the felicity of that. Yeah. But they they split them, they bleed them, they feather them, eviscerate them, they yeah. pack them into bags. Uh, then what do you do? First step is... And I wasn't trying to downplay that, like, they did all oh, man, that. I'm not like, a fucking... Yeah. No, I don't want to do that. You want to do that for 80 chickens every morning? No, no thank you. It's, it's a, that's a, not a fun yeah. job. And plus, they're giving you amazing chickens. Organic, free-range, hormone-free, heirloom bread. Um, but most of all... They're not, not, or, they're not organic. Food. Okay. Yeah. But fresh. Fresh. All that shit, like, I, it, they won't say any of that are organic, hormone-free, mm-hmm. like... They have antibiotics because they have to. Like every year there's bird flu Mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, which takes out thousands of birds and people's livelihoods. I mean, like it's they. So it's like opening a steak place in London, calling it Mad Cow. Yeah, exactly. So you don't want that. Um, But they're fresh. That's the the most most, important thing. Yeah, Yeah, I was was lost there for a second. Yeah, they're fresh. Then they're and they're amazing. They're delicious. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this before, um, but. What does a fresh chicken smell like? Shouldn't it should smell like flesh, like you know, and it, it, it like depending. I mean, it just smells like chicken in a good way, yeah. not in a bad way. You know what I mean? Like it's it. I it's a hard. That's a hard thing to describe what it should smell like. Because I've had tori sashi, uh, you know mm-hmm. the the raw chicken yeah. down in doesn't Kyushu. smell like anything. No, but there's a distinct, you know, textural thing that's amazing about that. What are you going for? Smell, flavor, texture. What is it about these birds that have become all, yard bird all, birds? All of the the above. Texture is amazing. The fat is the best part for sure. Uh, the like just the depth of flavor you get off of them. Um, and the ratios of size, like the way that the legs are, the breasts are small, the wings are wide, the neck is really thick compared to other chickens. Um, they just lend themselves really well to way. I mean, we to what we do. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this book, Chicken and Charcoal, is that you have these exploding diagrams of all the pieces yeah. of chicken. I think there's 29 from head coxcomb. Um, the wing has the, the tip, the tip skin, um, the wing, the wing, wing skin, uh, there's tail, breast, oyster, thigh, uh, both regular thigh and inner. I mean, goes on and on and on. When did you realize that there were more parts of a chicken than just saying, do you want chicken? When I was young, I, we, I mean, like I said, I loved eating the whole thing. And it was funny because my, my dad's house his his wife's father had like a frozen foods business and he would take whole chickens and cut them crosswise on a bandsaw and so you'd get these chicken steaks that had like can you imagine right if you think about cutting a chicken down the middle when it's frozen it had like all like the org like it had like little bits of the innards inside and you have like the rib and you have all these amazing parts so you are eating together and you don't even know what you're really eating so, I mean, then also the hearts and everything like that. Liver was always constantly around me. So, chicken feet. We used to order for dim sum. We used to go for, you know, we eat a lot of Chinese food. So, it's, it's, a, it's always been there. But then of a bird's anatomy, and I, I think it's through your website or your blog that you actually have these amazing posts. Mm. And you post about a specific part of 
the chicken. Uh, one of the ones I read recently was of the Achilles. Mm. Um, what is it about these specific pieces that set them apart? Let's go with like Hatsumoto. Yeah. What is it and what's it's, delicious it's, about it? I think the, the main thing that is, it will, is like I said, again, the singularity allows you to cook something very specifically. There's no, you know, there's, there's no different, like, you don't have to worry about multiple elements in this dish. This is cooking one single piece of an animal as close to what we think is perfect as possible. Hatsumoto is the ventricle of the heart, um, and that's a textural one. Obviously, you get some of the fat. So we cut, you're cutting off some of the fat as well. Uh, and then we'll cut a few hearts up and slice them in between, just kind of bulk it up and give it another little textural thing. Um, but those get, there's somewhere like, so little, because they're kind of coming out. And so the tips get crispy. Um, and the actual ventricles themselves still have a little bit of chew. And then you get little bursts of fat and meat kind of going all the way through. And then we pair, we, we, we dip that one in tare uh, quite quite a bit because um, and we season it also again with salt so it's heavily seasoned and has a Kyoto shichimi on it which is like a, a roasted shichimi it's a little spicier than our our blend because you're chewing it for a while like it's like yeah you know it's like there's a little do that sound in the microphone again that's a good sound yeah I mean this isn't ASMR but I mean this yeah. is as good as it gets when it comes to chicken um, Tebakawa is another one that I love because it has so much going on. It has the chew. It has mm. the crispness. Um, what is tabakawa? Tabakawa is the wing tip skin, uh, or actually just means wing skin. But we now we don't use the Japanese word for anything now, so we're just using English words. But the we the wing skin is the piece in between the drumstick and the midwing, and then it's the wing tip skin is just the. F- thicker side of the wingtip that uh where the feathers are held see it's so fascinating because you might think that these are very simple things because you've been doing them for so long or we can say something like you know thyroid yeah Uh, i know that's a little abstract but it's just a little piece there's so much that has to actually be done to it and so it has to be watched and it has to be cared for to come out as deliciously as you're cooking them but you also have to know how to skewer them. It seemed, that, that's a really fascinating lost art in my mind because it's not just sticking a piece of wood through a piece of meat, is it? No, no. See, the thing is, the, the actual, the preparation is much more important than the cooking in this situation. Uh, you, obviously, you still got to cook it properly, but that's easier than, it's much easier than cutting it and skewering it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely the most important part. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what about adding the umami? Because uh, mm-hmm. you spray your chickens with, what, sake? Yeah. You season them with seaweed salt. Um, is that more important than the flavor of the binchotan? You know, the I think that... In, no. no. <laughs> um, I think that, obviously, first and foremost, the chicken is the most important thing. Uh, then... The seasoning, probably, and then the charcoal for because you know it's, I don't want to. It's really not an easy. They're not that accessible just to grab some vinchotan and light it up, and you know what I mean. Like it's it's a pain in the ass sometimes. It's like it takes like two hours to fucking light. So I think that if people are gonna enjoy it, I think they should enjoy it how they. I think it's an amazing, amazing thing. But 
if you can get on a barbecue, okay, go get on a barbecue. Go outside and you know, have some fun. I, I want to talk about your menu because it's not just all traditional Japanese yeah. yakitori. And you said that's you know a great attribute of yours not being Japanese. Yeah. Um, the green miso breast, the thigh with Tokyo onion, those are a little more traditional. Yeah. Where does it get less traditional? I, the green miso one is probably the least traditional one. That's the only one that's not, and that's, that's kind of like a funny one. We just were stoned and just being stupid. And we're like, well, we kind of made like a pesto, like a pesto miso. Uh, this is essentially what this is. And it was just like a funny, because we have the Caesar salad, so it was like a grilled chicken Caesar salad. So that's definitely the most... Non-traditional, I'd say. All the other ones are pretty, like, pretty in line. Then you have really cool stuff that isn't grilled stuff, too. The, you have your KFC, but it's cauliflower. Yeah. Korean fried cauliflower. A corn tempura. Um, you have your own fried chicken, like your karage on menu. Yeah. Um, the one I was actually most interested about was the chicken and egg rice. Is that, like, an... How do you say it? Oyakodon? Oyakodon? Yeah. No, it, I mean, definitely similar elements. The, the Oyakodon, the, the chicken egg rice actually comes from an idea that my, it's a combination of two things. First of all, it's mochi rice um, and cooked in a technique that we learned from Masa. So he used to make his very well-known uni, uni rice and that was the same technique. So it's cooked like a risotto essentially. Um, I'm pretty sure he invented this i don't think that it ever really been done that way before park cook it you soak it overnight you park cook it and you cook it like a risotto and um and then as a combination of that and then my grandmother made this used to make this like super ghetto fried rice you remember those pancake cookers like you know like those things are like a like a skillet but it's it's like a pan you plug in right oh yeah yeah so my grandma would make like, um, she'd cook rice with a chicken powder, like a shit ton of chicken powder, and then frozen peas and eggs, and that was her thing. And so we'd, and then, so yeah, the flavors are more from that. We do, but we do caramelized onions in chicken fat. It's like schmaltz onions, basically. That's the primary, that. yeah. that's, that's the primary <laughs> flavor in that, in that rice. You know, we've talked about food a lot, but... I think yakitori is also so visual, mm. um, not just watching the chef prepare, but seeing it on the plate because of the garniture, because, you know, uh, you eat with your eyes first. We can talk about that, but I'd actually rather talk about the, the design, um, the elements of Yardbird and even Ronin and your life um, that come along with furniture, with collaborating with artists. How, how important are the visual aspects of, you know, Yardbird and you as a person? I mean, I definitely enjoy that. I hope I hope to one day not be cooking anymore and just design restaurants and build things. And it's a yeah. I mean, it's a real just focus and interest that I have, and I think that it's one of the most interesting things I could do because I get to make. I, I get to, we get to think of ways to do things and and actually realize them. And just be able to present something that can be complete and kind of silent at the same time. Um, you know, so it's nice. It's nice to be able to see it wear and tear and break and fix. And you come up with solutions. And to be involved in all those decisions is really important to me. Talk to me about Sean Dix. 
So Sean Dix is a very close friend of mine now. Um, I met him, so basically I was looking for chairs for Yardbird, for the first Yardbird in Hong Kong. And um, I had put on hold this 33 Friso Kramer Revolt chairs, which are like a very classic uh, school, like school in, you know, I think it was designed in like the 51 or something like that. Yeah, they're like very institutional. Very institutional, but really well made and, and they look good. They're fucking beautiful chair. And I was, so I put a lot of those on hold to be shipped from Amsterdam, like trying to get them for the restaurant. And I just was Googling and more and more and I was getting deeper into a rabbit hole of chairs. And I came upon one of Sean's chairs. And I think, oh, like, I didn't know. I, first, I just said, like, the chair. I clicked on the chair. Turned out it was Sean. Uh, turned out he was based in Hong Kong. I had no idea. And uh, so I just found his office number, and I called the office. And his, one of his designers answered, and she's like, he'll call you back. Give me your number. Like, five minutes later, he calls me back. And his office was less than three blocks from... Yarbird, where it was originally. And so I just walked over there and he had this beautiful, huge wall of design books and we just talked. We, you know, we really, I was already, we were already like three months into construction. Like it was designed more or less. He just, when he got in, he just redid a lot of it, made it better. And then we came up with a chair. We, we were just sketching chairs. You know, the, the Friso Kramer thing came up and we talked about that a lot. And we, so we, we, yeah, we got to just, it was amazing, you know, just come up with a, he, you know, he's, a, he's incredible. Come up with a chair and, and he named it the Arbor chair and that's it. And we've been using that chair ever since. That, that's what I love. I, I have a whole bunch of friends who have been to your restaurant and they're like, oh, it's so fucking delicious. It's so great. It's really comfortable. And by that, they often refer to the seating. Yeah. And how often do you hear that about a restaurant? That's the thing about design, right? Like, we, I'm so into acoustics right now. Like I'm just like that's the for me. Like when we're designing, when I'm designing now, I want to just design based around acoustics. I actually want to start with acoustics and go backwards. Like like just because it's, I think it's the most functional form of design that you can't even. Like I was just in a a sound booth room. Like I've never been in a room that quiet. It's insane. It's fucking weird. Anyway, so yeah. And then working with Evan. Hecox, yeah. who's an artist, is that functional design or is that something oh, else? Oh, that was like a like a full nerd moment for me. I mean, like I grew up skateboarding uh, and he's been my favorite artist for years. I used to buy all his prints every time they were released. I bought all his prints. Um, and when I was working on the restaurant, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and see if I can get a hold of Evan Hecox through a friend and see if he'll do our logo. And he fucking did. Like, he was like, never, I never talked to him before that day. You know, and it was like, I called him and he, I emailed him and then talked to him on the phone. And it was like within three days or something, he'd done it. What were the words that you described, used to describe what you wanted as far as the logo, what Yardbird was going to be? I just wanted his hand. You know, his hand is, is that. And to me, it's very iconic for growing up because it was for Chocolate Skateboards, which is my favorite skateboard company. And that was their logo. It was his writing. 
So it's like just, it's all this kind of it's just it's distinct for me. And it's mm-hmm. distinct from my my community of skateboarders. Like people and art and people that like art, but I think the skateboarders especially recognize it right away. And that was important for me. I wanted that I wanted us to have identity of you know a community that we already belong to. I have one last question, which I'm hoping amalgamates a lot of things for you, for us. But if you were to design a new piece of chicken, you know, maybe the oyster part of the chicken wasn't uh, a well-known thing 50 years ago. What cut of chicken would you want to be called the yard bird? Like, is it fatty? Does it have a lot of skin? Oh, it definitely has skin. Yeah, definitely fatty. Uh, I'd like something with some cartilage. Yeah. Does this Bones. exist on the burnt? Yeah, the knee bone. The knee does definitely have all those things. It doesn't have as much skin. It has fat, though. Yeah. I mean, have you ever used transglutaminate meat glue no. to, to make your Frankenstein ideal of the perfect piece of chicken? Mm-hmm. Would you ever? I have no interest in gluing chicken. So the best part of the chicken is the whole chicken going to Yardbird, sitting in a Yardbird seat and, you know, having it from tip to tail. Well, you know, the thing is that we can gather, like, not, you don't really get access to 80 chickens a day. You know, like, don't, people don't have, you know, it takes all of those chickens to make six thyroid skewers or eight thyroid skewers, you know? So I think that's what it is, is like, is more being able to enjoy those things because you, you're never going to get them anywhere else, really, except for other yakitori restaurants. Or in Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully I'll see you there soon. Thanks so much for being on the food scene. Thank you. Listen, you've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.